0: What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Gotcha? Got Scott what Adams you is the creator Shondalini. of Dilbert, one of the most popular comic strips of all time. In addition to creating Dilbert, Scott has been a best selling author and successful entrepreneur. His many bestsellers include The Dilbert Principle, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big, and his newest book, Loser Think. For longtime listeners of the show, you know how big of a fan Sean is of Scott, and on this episode, they cover some of his favorite topics, such as systems over goals, talent stacking, and Scott's creative process. If you want to learn how to win big in life, this episode is for you. Making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. and they make the most delicious, keto friendly, all natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar. And loaded with high quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great tasting convenience stack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. Scott Adams, welcome to What Got You There. How are you doing today?
1: i'm doing great thanks for having me no of course very excited
0: about this conversation this is one i've been looking forward to for a long time but i don't think there's a better place to start than grabbing our favorite bread beverage and taking a simultaneous sip
1: <laughs> so well, i've got my i've got my beverage right here so i'm with you
0: where, where did your love for coffee and this routine come from
1: well, my love of coffee started in college. I know some people call it coffee, but I'm from upstate New York, so I still call it coffee. <laughs> and and so I got addicted to coffee in, in the usual way. It just helped me get through the mornings. But when I started doing it on uh, periscope, it caught on, and so I just went with it. You know, one of the things that you learn as a creator is that your audience tells you what the what the product is. You know, you think you know, and you go and say, I'm going to give you this. And then the audience quite quickly says, no, how about you give us this instead? So you really have to follow the audience if you're smart about it.
0: Is that how you most identify right now, as a creator?
1: Yeah, primarily. I mean, the Dilbert comic is another example of that. You know, people ask me to do more workplace comics in the early days of the, the strip, when it was just a generic comic at the time. And I listened to the audience. They wanted it to be a workplace strip, so I turned it into that. So I'm sort of a creator who has a degree in in business. I've got an MBA, so I tend to listen to the audience more than the the average artist who has artistic integrity might. (laughs) I, I don't have to worry. I don't have all that artistic integrity. I'd rather give give the audience what they actually know they want you you mentioned the nba you also were valedictorian of your high school correct i was but that's not nearly as uh, as as impressive as it sounds because there are <laughs> only 40 people in my graduating <laughs> class
0: being the, the top one of 40 isn't too bad though uh we were talking about coffee there for a second i, I am intrigued though about routines typical morning what does that usually look like for you
1: I wake up without an alarm clock these days, so I let my body tell me when it's time to get up. This morning, it told me at around 4 a.m., which is typical. So between 4 and 6, usually, I wake up. First thing I do is I get my coffee, and then I look at the headlines and get ready to do my daily Periscope live stream, and that happens 7 a.m. my time, so it's 10 a.m. Eastern Standard. And I try to do it at the same time every day, and I always start with a simultaneous sip. Everybody joins me to, to sip their coffee at the same time, at least once. And um, I'm a trained hypnotist, and one of the things you learn is that people can become very, uh, very hooked on habit. So I knew that coffee was attractive to most people. I knew that if they did it at the same time, it would become habit-forming. And that's part of the fun, since I write about and talk about persuasion. Uh, I'm not hiding the fact that I do this for effect, and people understand that.
0: You mentioned habits. What about the rest of the day? Uh, I'm always intrigued about what different creators do throughout the day. It might even be the evening, just things that you found success doing.
1: The biggest, most important trick that I found is if you can get to the point where you have some control over your schedule— uh, then you can match your energy state, just how you feel, uh, with the type of task. So in my case, I'm by far the most creative and energetic in the morning. So getting up extra early makes sense for me because I can optimize my, my creative time. By sometime around noon, and then it lasts for several hours, my brain just doesn't work in any creative way. It's, just all, it's all about task. You know what's my to-do list? What's on my calendar? Who do I have to call? Um, and so I make sure that my my boring tasks are in the afternoon, and then I've noted that it's easier to sit down and draw for a long time if I have to if I have to do a bunch of drawing for the Dilbert comic. Um, it's good if I've exercised that day because that calms me down, gets my body nice and tired and relaxed. And that's a perfect energy state for mindlessly drawing stuff.
0: So it's it's 10 a.m. right now. Where are we in terms of you being brain dead? <laughs> are we gonna gonna have a little bit of functionality here for a little bit?
1: Oh no, you're good. You, <laughs> uh, I've I've done my periscope for the morning. I've done a little little extra work. I've got at least an hour of, of good mental clarity here.
0: That's fantastic. I'll take it.
1: So, so the way I actually
0: first came to your work besides Dilbert was actually your talk around systems versus goals. And growing up, I always heard yeah, you have to set these, these goals and follow them. And then your concept of systems versus goals just hit me like a eureka moment. I would love if you could just talk about the philosophy around that and even how that came to be for you.
1: Yeah, so that was in my book, uh, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. And I talk about the idea that goals can be limiting. Uh, If you have a big, complicated world with um, almost infinite possibilities, if you focus on one goal, uh, what happens if you achieve it? There's a good chance that something else popped up that would have been better to do if you, had, you know, if you had pivoted in time. So the first thing that goals do that's bad is it blinds you to other opportunities, which might be percolating and you know, they might be popping up all over the place. and You're just not noticing because you're focusing. The, the other problem with goals is that you feel as if you're in a continuous state of failure until you achieve your goal at which point you just set another goal and, and jump into more failure. Whereas a system, uh, the way I define it anyway, is something that you do on a regular basis that improves your odds of success, but not in a specific way that you would call a goal. So, for example, going to college and uh, getting a major in, let's say, English literature or something like that. You don't know exactly where that's going to lead, but it can give you lots of opportunities in lots of different places. So it's generally considered a good system. But likewise, you can build systems for your fitness, your your diet, your career, and all of them will be a little bit different. Everybody can build their own system. But as long as you're doing something every day that's leading you Closer to a place where your odds of something good happening are better. That's, that's usually the best you can do in a complicated world. And then you always feel like you're making progress. Uh, for example, one of my systems involves uh, exercising every day. Now, that might include just you know cleaning the garage one day. It doesn't mean I necessarily go to the gym, but I have to stay active every day. And I have a system where I do that at about the same time every day, also related to my energy state. I try to do that around uh, noon if I can. And um, I just plug away at it. And then every day I say to myself, well, how am I doing on fitness? And I say, did I go to the gym today? Did I work out today? Did I take a walk? Yes, a success. So I define success as working my system. And my best example of that is uh, numerous times every year, let's say half a dozen times every year, I will drive all the way to my gym across town, I'll get out of my car, I'll walk into the gym, and I'll stand there in the foyer by the big rock wall, and I'll look at all the people exercising, and I'll just look around and I'll say, nope, not today. Uh, and I, I, will, I will literally turn around, walk directly out the door, get in my car, drive home, and do something else. Because there are some days your body just can't do it. It just isn't there. And the, the big part of my system is that I don't make myself do unpleasant things for exercise. And if I knew it was going to be unpleasant that day, that would be far worse than taking a day off. Because, you know, your body needs to rest every now and then anyway. So I call that a successful day. So if I go to the gym, walk in, say, nope, nope. And drive home. That is one hundred percent successful, because what I was trying to achieve is to make sure there's never a day when my habit doesn't drive me toward exercise. And my habit did, it drove me all the way to the gym, even though I didn't want to exercise. That's a good habit. I mean, to me, that's that's like a plus 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 day. That's the best day you can have if your habit drove you to the gym when you didn't even want to go. So uh, that mindset is just so much more productive. It's like yes. I, I learned something today. Didn't achieve any particular goal, but I know that now I'm more valuable today. I exercised, I ate right. so whatever whatever those systems are, you could feel like you're you're nailing it every day because you probably are.
0: yeah. I, I feel like that might have been one of the biggest fundamental shifts for me in the past five years is this new approach. And something you said a minute ago is, is feel you are in a continuous state of failure when, when you're striving for those goals. Do you think this system is what's allowed you to continue the success with Dilbert that you just never felt satisfied and you were always able to produce and continue more great work?
1: Well, I build a lot of systems into uh, keeping myself you know, creatively fresh and, and not burned out. So I've been doing Dilbert now 30 years. And, and it's hard to do anything for 30 years without getting burned out. So, um, for example, one of my systems is that I continually look for ways to cut corners. So I was one of the first cartoonists to start drawing on a computer. So I, I do all the drawings now um, you know, on a Wacom Cintiq. It's a computer screen that you can draw directly on, and it just turns it into a digital file. Uh, but I also created a font of my own handwriting. So that what used to take a long time to put ink on all the lettering of all the words, I just type it. so it's it's a huge time saver. so in in a thousand different ways, I just continually chip away at, at anything that's inefficient. I just work on that until it's efficient. so now i can I can do my primary job in one, maybe two hours a, a day, and and I'm done with that, and then that frees up time to work on other projects, such as writing books.
0: When developing this efficiency, do you think that comes from a place of being lazy?
1: No, it comes from a place of uh, being born into a certain situation. So um, my mother was a farmer's daughter, and we lived near the, the farm she grew up on. And I used to go there and work. And one of the things you learn... Uh, if you work on a farm is that you really, 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 really need to figure out how to do things efficiently because you're using your body all day. And if you don't, if you don't make it efficient, you just can't get the work done that needs to be done on the farm. So my my uncle, the farmer, would just continuously be teaching us all these little systems he'd develop over the years uh, of how to do things with less muscle work and you know get it done right the first time and everything. And that just stuck with me. So I, I've just always had that mindset. I think it was one of the best things I learned young.
0: No, thanks for, for sharing that story. I always love hearing about the origin story of someone. So around that time, what did you actually think you'd end up being or, or doing as an adult?
1: <laughs> Depends when you ask me. <laughs> if you asked me anytime between the ages of six years old and 11, I would have said, I'm going to be a world-famous cartoonist. From the age of 11 to uh well in my late twenties or so, I would have said nobody can become a famous cartoonist. You know, three people in the world, you know, there's seven billion people, probably six billion at the time. That's not realistic. Nobody can do that. So I tried to be a, a lawyer, you know, went to school thinking I would be, you know, pre-law. That didn't excite me enough to continue. Then I thought I'd be some kind of entrepreneur or business person or banker. I ended up being a banker for a while. And it wasn't until my banking career, and then later my career at the phone company, uh, hit, a, hit a wall. Uh, and I'll tell you why, because enough time has gone by, I can tell this story. I couldn't tell this for years, the actual story. But in both my banking job and my phone company job, my boss, in each of them individually, called me into the office and said, I got bad news for you. Uh, the word has come down, I can't, I can't promote white men anymore. <laughs> now, you, you hear that story and you say, that's not true. And I promise on my honor, that was a direct conversation in two different places. And I quit the first, the bank, because my boss said in direct language, you know, we have, we have too much imbalance. We don't have uh, really any, anything like diversity in senior management. And so the word has come down. We're just not going to promote any white men until we fix that. And I said, how long will that take? And she said, well, you know, it took 200 years to get us to here. (laughs) So, uh, or words to that effect. And so I I left my first job and went to the phone company, got on the management track. So I was sort of identified as someone who might be senior management someday. And I think, wow, things are working out. And one day my boss called me in his office and gave me exactly the same speech Hey, we just got caught. We don't have enough diversity. We've got to fix it. I'm sorry to tell you, we won't be able to promote white men for the foreseeable future. So that was the point where I said, you know, I'm going to see if I can just try some things in my free time. Because the minute I heard that, I had a lot of free time. <laughs> I, I, I I used to, I used to be the guy who would put in a lot of extra hours because I thought, well, that'll help me get promoted. I'll learn more. I'll make more contacts. And one once I was told directly that none of that mattered. You know, what, what mattered was my 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 DNA basically, and I couldn't change it. So. Um, I thought, well, I'll try to see if I can get some comics published, because I'd always had an interest in cartooning my whole life. I thought, well, I'll see if I can get some comics published in some magazine somewhere. and That didn't work out, but eventually uh, syndication in newspapers did work out. And I, I worked my day job for several years while I got the cartooning going, and, and then I transitioned.
0: No, I, I would love to dive into you taking advantage of this free time in a minute, but why did they identify you for senior management?
1: Well, I was finishing up my MBA at Berkeley, so it's one of the top business schools. I had a degree in economics, and I played the corporate game really well. Uh, I, I would love to hire me. You know if I worked for a corporation and, and I could hire me, I would hire me in a heartbeat because I really did take the work seriously. you know I wanted to do good work, I played played by the rules, did everything you're supposed to do. It just didn't work out for me
0: so you mentioned in the free time you you start seeing if you'd get some of the cartoons published, what made you even think you had that opportunity.
1: So when I first started thinking about getting some comics published, I had no idea how to do this. And it's hard for anybody young listening to this to understand what it was like before the Internet. Imagine before the Internet, if you had a question like, well, how would I become a cartoonist? You kind of couldn't find out. (laughs) You know, you didn't really you wouldn't necessarily have any way to find that out. So one day I, I was thinking about that and thinking I didn't know how to do it, I just wanted to do it. And one day I turned on the TV, I was flipping through the channels, and there was a the end of a TV show about how to become a cartoonist on some PBS station. And I missed almost the entire show, but as the closing credits were rolling by, I grabbed a pencil and I wrote down the name of the host and figured out where their studio was, and I, I sent him a letter, just a snail mail letter, and I said... I missed your whole show, but I'd like to be a cartoonist. Can you, can you give me some advice? A couple weeks later, I get a handwritten two-page letter from the host of the show, who, who is a working cartoonist, who was at the time as well. His name is Jack Cassidy. And he told me what books to buy, what materials to use, and then he gave me this, this valuable advice. He said, it's a really competitive business, meaning cartooning, and you will be rejected a lot, but don't give up. So I thought, well, okay, I know I have everything I need now. I got the inspiration, I got the books, I got the materials. So I put together my best cartoons and sent them off, as I said, to some of the major magazines, the New Yorker, Playboy. Uh, they they paid the most, so I just started there, and they rejected me. So they they sent back the rejection letters, and I thought, well, all right, I gave it my best shot. You know, what are you going to do? I gave it all my effort. Didn't work out. So I put all my our supplies in a closet, and I just forgot about it and concentrated on playing tennis in my, in my spare time. And uh, a year goes by, and I go out to my mailbox, and there's a second letter from the cartoonist Jack Cassidy who had given me the original advice a year earlier. And we'd had no contact. I hadn't even thanked him for his advice in that time. So it was really weird that there'd be a second letter a year later. And he opened his letter, and he said he was cleaning his office up, and it was a big pile of documents. And he came across my original letter to him with some samples that I'd sent. And he said that he was just writing to make sure that I hadn't given up. And that was the only reason he wrote. There was, there was no other point. He just said, I just want to write to make sure you haven't given up. And I thought, well, maybe he sees something that even I don't see. Maybe he sees more here than the editors who rejected me at those magazines see. So I thought I would raise my sights and try to become a syndicated cartoonist, which means that you make a deal with a company called a a syndication company, and then they sell it to newspapers all over the world. So your big break is if one of those syndication companies, and there are only a few of them, I think there were four or five that mattered at the time, then there are fewer of them now. And I sent off my samples and rejections started pouring in. I thought I had all the rejections. And I said, well, now I've tried twice. Put all my my materials back in the same closet and forgot about it. A few months go by and I get a phone call from a woman who said that she was an editor for a syndication company I'd never heard of. She said she was from some company called United Media. And I didn't recognize that name. I hadn't sent my samples to anybody by that name. And she said she she saw my samples, I didn't know how, and wanted to offer me a contract to be a syndicated cartoonist. Now, keep in mind, this is like the biggest break you could ever have for a cartoonist. But I didn't understand who this company was, and I didn't trust it. Because it seemed like, you know, kind of a scammy, out of the blue call, you know, maybe some kind of you know trickier. So I said, you know, I'm flattered by your offer, but I haven't heard of your company, this... United Media Company. Uh, do you have any references, or is there anybody you've worked with that has ever been published in any way? And there was this long pause, and then she said, "Yeah, we handle peanuts and <laughs> and, and Garfield. And when she got to about the twelfth name on the list of of inter, of international superstar cartoonists, I realized that my negotiating position had been <laughs> compromised. I, I didn't know what I was doing, so it turns out the reason I didn't recognize the company is that she she called me under the corporate um, name instead of the syndication company's name, so I didn't recognize it. But I said yes to that deal. Got syndicated. Uh, Dilbert was a big failure for the first several years. Uh, it was only in I don't know a few dozen newspapers total which is not nearly enough to make any kind of a living. And it wasn't until I put my email in the strip, I put my email address between the panels back in 93, I think. And this was before even people had email. Most people didn't even have email back then. And so when I put my email address in the comic, it caused all the people who did have email, the early adopters, but didn't have anybody else to write to because they didn't know anybody who had email either. And they would see my email address and they would write to me because it was the only address they knew. And they would say, hey, we, you know, we kind of like your Cartoon, but we like it a lot when Dilbert is doing business stuff, if he's in the office. And at the time, he wasn't in the office hardly at all. He was just doing generic stuff at home. And, and so I thought, well, if everybody's saying the same thing, it was almost universal. It was almost everybody said the same thing. So I said, well, the audience has spoken. So I just moved it into the office and it took off after that.
0: I'm really intrigued by that feedback loop that was created by the email. Had you been receiving any type of advice like that prior to putting your email in there?
1: Absolutely not. One of the big problems as a cartoonist is there are so many layers between you and the actual uh, customer. So the person reading it Got it from a newspaper, perhaps. The newspaper you know, went through an editor, went through the syndication company, the printing company, you know, and then me. So I had no contact and no, no feedback at all. The only people who would give me feedback were people I talked to, and they're all stinking liars. You know the, 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 last, the, the last thing you want to do is ask your friends or your family like, hey, how's how, how's this look? And they're like, oh, that's great! You got to do something with that. That's that's terrific. It just doesn't mean anything.
0: Yeah, my mom's you a know, big fan feedback- of my
1: podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember when I uh, when the New York Times did a major feature story on me, and I I was so happy to tell my mom. I thought, well, at last, I will impress my mother because she's hard to impress. And it's like, "Mom, you have know, a feature story and, uh, or was it Wal- I think it was The New York Times or Wall Street Journal. I forget which one. and, and she goes, "Oh, we don't get that one." I'm like, "Really? <laughs> really? Maybe, maybe you can make a little effort. Maybe you can make some effort and get that one." And, 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 then, she, and she, then she landed the kill shot. She goes, "Do you think you'll ever be in people?") <laughs> 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 In her, in her world, if you weren't in People Magazine, you hadn't made it yet. So. Yeah, you weren't in later, later, I was in People Magazine a number of times, so she was happy. Huh. So in terms of these
0: feedback loops, once this happened, did you start viewing life differently in terms of how you could develop these feedback loops in, in other aspects of your life? You?
1: Well, remember, my background was not art. It was business and in the business realm uh, certainly anybody who's got an MBA will tell you this as you know the bedrock basic rule of business if you don't have a channel to your customer you don't have a business model because you just you're just you know shooting blind and that's not going to work too often except by pure luck so as a business person it was obvious to me I had to create that channel and as luck would have it um, my day job was working with you know, email and the internet before anybody even knew what those things were, and so it was obvious to me that the the way to do that was to put my email in the comic. Which, which by the way, this this tells you how um, how early those days were in terms of our understanding of the internet and how that works. Is that there was a real pushback from my um, syndication company because they thought the newspapers wouldn't print the strip if I had my email address in it. Because they, the thinking was, uh, they're going to say that's advertising. And they pay us to run the strip. They're not going to let us put an advertisement in there and pay us for it. Like Nobody's going to do that. And one of the advantages I had, and again, this is another thing that business training teaches you, is that my comic was basically failing at that point. And so when your, your product is failing, that opens up options. So you can do things that would have seemed too risky under normal conditions. And you could try things that established comics can't do because they don't want to take a risk. So I said, well, you're right. Maybe that is a risk. Maybe a newspaper will cancel me. But it's not going to be worse than what's happening now because you know I was on a trajectory to go out of business. So they agreed with the risk management proposition and said, well, you can always just see what happens and you know, stop doing it if it doesn't work. But that turned out to be the key that unlocked all the value. You mentioned a minute ago, and you said
0: if luck would have it. What's your take on luck?
1: Well, I also wrote about luck in my book, How to Fail and Almost Everything Still Went Big. And my take is that you can manage luck, but only indirectly. And my best example is that I was born and I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, Wyndham, New York. And had I stayed there, the odds of getting lucky were very low because there wasn't much energy. There weren't many things happening. Uh, so the first thing I did as soon as I got my degree is I uh, traded my car for a one-way ticket to California, a plane ticket, and said, "You know, I've, uh, I'm fully free. I don't have any, you know, uh, strings attached anywhere. I'm just going to go where there's the most chance of luck finding me." So I went to San Francisco. And I thought, there's plenty of energy here, people, business, money, contacts. If I can't get lucky here, I'm not trying. And then the next thing you do is you have to do a lot of things. You have to, you have to interact with the environment. And w- one of the things I talk about in my, my new book uh, that's just out, Loser Think, is that if you if you don't know how to do something, but you want to do it, let's say you want to start a business or learn how to do something, whatever... The best way to learn how to do something is to do it wrong because you'd be amazed how much uh, free help that attracts. If you do something wrong in front of other people and they know how you should have done it, they're going to tell you and they're not going to charge you for it. <laughs> you can you can get all the free advice you want by doing bad work in public. And I've used this method a, a number of times because uh you know when I <laughs> When I first was a cartoonist, my drawing was terrible. You know, the writing wasn't focused. But I did it in public, and people kept telling me what was working and what wasn't. And, and then I could sort of craft it and improve it over time. Uh, likewise, when I started doing my, my Periscope live streaming, most of the comments in the early days were, you know, you're really ugly. You should move the camera a, l- a little bit back. You know, may, maybe you should move that camera back, Scott. No, really, seriously, listen to us. Move the camera back. The less of you we see, the better. Now they were wrong. They were right, completely right. You know, after, when you reach a certain age, especially if you're not wearing any kind of TV makeup, maybe you should move the camera back a little bit. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's funny. The advice like that is so simple but i didn't think of it on my own you know I, I probably would not have made that change except for the free advice i got by doing things incorrectly in public so that's that's how you can generate luck right it's not it's not exactly luck that i exposed myself to a situation which had a high chance of somebody telling me what to do right while i did it wrong in public so uh, anytime you can, just go out there and mix it up, make some mistakes, embarrass yourself, create some action, meet some people—just anything that's energy. As long as other people are exposed to it, the odds of luck finding you just go way up.
0: You were talking about trading in the uh, the car for the plane ticket. What was the the end of that story?
1: Well, there, there's a pre-story to that, uh, which is my 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 senior year of college. I was going to an interview uh, at an accounting firm. And it was a, it was a I don't know, an hour and a half drive or something from my college. And I had a very unreliable car that broke down on the way back from the interview. It was February, and it was very cold, and it was a new road, and there was no other traffic on it. So my car breaks down, and here's the kicker. I didn't bring a jacket because I didn't have any jackets that looked professional, and I was just going to be in the car, you know. I was like, "Well, I'll just go from car to building. I don't really need a jacket." But but once it got dark, and it was February, and there was winter, it got really cold. So I left my car because I knew if I stayed in it, there wasn't enough traffic to be even sure anybody would ever drive by and and save me. And you know, I started getting. You know, my my limbs were starting to stiffen. I could barely walk. At one point, I was so cold. <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to run for it. So I knew that I couldn't run backwards where I, where I had been because I hadn't seen any civilization in so long that I knew I wouldn't be able to go that far. But I didn't know exactly what was ahead of me. You know, Maybe there was something over the next hill. I didn't know. So I decided to run for it. got out of the car with my no jacket. Middle of the winter, I just started running. And you know, I could feel my ankles started to just turn to concrete. You know, it was so cold that they they were starting to no longer even bend. And I'm, you know, I'm not really a long distance runner or anything. I was in pretty good shape, but I'm not a distance runner. And I started, you know, started to think I might not make this. I I might actually be dead by morning because there's no civilization, and I'm not going to be able to run to warmth. I didn't know what to do, and I decided that night, or as I was running near death, wondering if I had frostbite already, I said to myself, if I survive this, can I swear on your show? Yeah, of course. Because <laughs> right. for authenticity, you have to know the exact thought. And I said to myself, if I survive this night, I'm going to sell my fucking car for a one-way ticket to California and I'm never I'm never going to see another fucking snowflake as long as I live. If I survive, Uh, a traveling shoe salesman came by and saved me. You know, I flagged him down. I stood in the middle of the road. He wasn't going to go anywhere without, without making me up. And uh, he, he saved my life literally. And, few months later, I graduated, and I, I traded my car straight up for a one-way plane ticket to my sister. It was an inside job, but uh, and then I went to California, and uh, I think only once I was forced to be near a snowflake a few times, but uh, I, I've been pretty true to my promise not to be in cold weather.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I live in South Florida for a reason, trying to avoid the uh, the snowflakes. One thing that really intrigued me is you were talking about how you developed your system even better, and your work in Dilbert became better. So what does your creative process actually look like today?
1: So today, uh, every comic starts with uh, an idea for the, the situation. You know, what is the dilemma, the problem, the, the topic? And for those, uh, my most recent method is I just send out a tweet and say, hey, what's, what's bothering you about your, your work? Tell me in the comments. And then I'll look through comments and I'll see usually uh, issues that are familiar to me from my own experience, work experience or other. And I say, ah, that's familiar to me. It's probably familiar to other people. So the first test is that at least two people have to have the same thought. So if somebody says, oh, we have this weird situation at work, and it's so weird that nobody's ever had that situation, I don't use that because nobody can relate. But if it's something I, as soon as I read it, I go, oh, my God, that's so familiar. That happened to be when I was working too. Then I usually have something. Uh, and then I say, all right, which characters would be involved in this? <laughs> and then I just start writing. And I write and rewrite and Change characters, and it becomes an iterative process after that. and And there's somewhat of a formula for writing humor. so it, it's a little bit more formulaic than it would seem from the outside. So uh, I'll, I'll start with my whatever the vexing problem is that the characters have to deal with. and and then I'll say, all right, what what would happen in the real world? And then I'll say, okay, this isn't the real world, it's the comic world. What would be the most extreme, ridiculous thing that could happen in this? And you know, I could introduce robots and aliens and you know, ghosts or anything else because it's a comic. So I usually try to uh, keep a kernel of truth. That's the part that makes people attracted to it in the first place. Then I try to exaggerate it or add hyperbole or clever words or something naughty or clever. You know, you you always have to add dimensions. It's sort of like a, a layering process, and. And lots of iteration until one of them uh, moves me physically. So here's a little uh, test. Uh, If you're writing, if you're creating art of any kind, in this case I'll talk about uh, humor specifically, if it doesn't move somebody's body, you're not done yet. And when I say move their body, they have to do more than just read it and have a reaction. More than just read it and go, ah, that's pretty good. I want somebody to cut it out if it's you know printed and put it on their fridge. That's that's their body moving. I want somebody to send it to somebody else in an email attachment. That's their body. I want somebody to like laugh or cry or snort, you know, more more than just a, a giggle in the chair. So the first test that I put on my own writing is if when I read my own joke back, do do I feel it physically? And quite often I do, I'll, I'll feel an involuntary, you know, even as the author of it, even when I know where it's going. So if I don't feel it physically, I'm not done. So I write it until I can feel it.
0: How different is your book writing process? You, you just finished up your new book, Loser Think, and I just wonder how that differentiates.
1: Well, it's much, much harder is the... The first part of the answer, one of the advantages of having an established universe with the Dilbert characters, uh, it's very much like Seinfeld in its ninth year. It's way easier to write content for an established universe because you're, you're, you're starting with rules and then you're just writing to those rules. All right. What would this guy think? What would this woman think in this situation? That's way easier. But if you sit down to write a book, it's literally a blank page and you can go anywhere So that process is, first of all, uh, scarier, more undefined, but you, you, and then you feel your way through it. You know, I just get, I sit down and I just start writing and I write poorly and quickly and try to get some ideas down and then look at them and say, okay, I like the, I like the idea, but not the way I wrote it. So then maybe I'll rewrite it a bunch of times until I like it. Um, the the biggest difference I would say is that for the comic, if I write one joke a day, uh, that's really good work and that's enough to be you know a world renowned cartoonist one joke a day. But if you write a book, and in my case, you know most of my books have humor laced throughout them, you might have to write five jokes on a page for a three hundred page book. So the, just the total number of humor points that you have to hit for a book that has humor in it is, is just through the roof compared to cartooning. So the degree of difficulty is extraordinary. Um, there's probably a reason that you don't see many cartoonists who also are authors. Because <laughs> if, you, if you've got a pretty good gig writing cartoons and you're being paid for it, it, it does not look rational to also write a book. Because it's a hundred times more work, and if things are already going well, you don't need it. So in in my case, I just have greater interests outside of cartooning, and my creative, uh, I guess my muse drags me different places, and that's also part of my uh, creative technique. Um, I don't try to create anything that I have to push. So if I feel myself pushing or forcing it, uh, I know it's not going to work and it doesn't go anywhere. The, the ones that work well are if I say to myself, you know, I think I'll write a book on this topic, and then I write, say, one page. And one of two things happens. Either I look at it and say, ah, it just lays there and it's just dead to me too, so I'm not going to go with this. Or I write it and I say to myself, damn, I wish it, it were not so close to lunch because I really want to write another page. And that's the energy pulling you. So if you can find an idea that pulls you, then all of the the energy that you would normally have to muster on your own to put into it is unnecessary because the project actually gives you the energy. It's it's feeding you at the same time you're building it. So short of that, I would never be able to write a book. And for every book I've written, there have been I uh, don't let's say half a dozen books that I contemplated and played with, but they never gave me energy. So they 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 were stillborn.
0: I'm really fascinated about you following this muse and you get to that point where you don't want to go to lunch and you have more energy. How many times have you really followed that energy for a decent amount of time and then realized this is this is not a project you want to work on?
1: Usually you can tell pretty quickly. That's the beauty of it is that um, I don't think I've ever written more than one chapter before I knew conclusively whether this had any potential. Uh, A chapter's a lot. I mean, I could tell usually in a page or two whether I've got a book. Um, So the the energy either comes quickly or it just doesn't come.
0: Hmm. I'm really fascinated by that and your ability to course correct. And I know you've written before about your your biases and and understanding blind spots. So then how do you avoid those biases and, and how do you discover those blind spots quickly?
1: Well, it depends on the context. If I'm writing cartoons, I don't want to discover all of my blind spots. I don't want to write about them because those, you know, the flaws and foibles, especially the ones I, I share, are just fun content. But if I'm, let's say, I'm uh, analyzing events in the headlines or politics or something, in those cases, I need to be a little more accurate if I can, a little less biased. And that's what the book Loser Think is all about. So it's a whole set of techniques for doing it. I'll just give you a a couple examples. So one of the tricks I use is if the news on the left, let's say CNN, MSNBC types, reports something as true, and the news on the right also reports that it's true, let's say Fox News, Breitbart, whatever, it's probably true. Because then the left and the right have both reported as a fact. But you'll discover that if only one of those two sides reports something as a fact, it almost never is. And it doesn't matter which way it goes. It doesn't matter if the right says it's a fact and the left doesn't or vice versa. If you can't get both of them to agree on a fact, it's probably just an opinion and that's that's probably the best filter you'll ever have. Now a lot of people are stuck in their silo and will only listen to the news sources that largely agree with what they want to hear. So if you can't force yourself to at least sample the other side, you're definitely in a bubble. So that that would be one of many tips in the book.
0: Yeah, no, the, the book is really interesting. I was able to to read a ton of it this weekend and, and one of the quotes I really enjoyed and I'd love just to hear more about is A person who considers ego a reflection of self instead of a tool that one can dial up or down as needed has fewer pathways to success. I'm always intrigued by how different successful people handle ego. And I I love how you relate it to a dial. And I would just love for you to even dive a little deeper on this.
1: Yeah, so take, take what we're doing right now. So even to have this conversation, since I know lots of people will look at it, and it's in the context of you know I'm sort of in book tour mode and trying to make people like my book or like me enough to buy my book. So I'm conscious of, of how high I should dial my ego before it's obnoxious <laughs> because there's, there's, a, there's a fine point there because you want to dial it up so that you feel comfortable doing the sort of thing I'm doing right now. Speaking to lots of people in public, uh, you know, clearing my throat, ma- making you know probably mistakes and things. Maybe I got some factual errors. I wish I could have said differently. So you need to have enough ego that you feel comfortable taking on challenges that could be embarrassing if you did them wrong. But you want to have uh, you want to have a, a cap on it so you don't seem obnoxious to other people. So you've, you should, you always have this balancing act of where's the perfect ego point. If I'm taking on, let's say, a project that's not in my sweet spot, it's not something I already know how to do well, well, then I might dial my ego up and say, hey, I could do this. How hard could it be? I could figure this out. But it's more technique. It's not who I am because I can dial it down too. So if I'm uh, in a context where showing too much ego would be all bad and no good, I just dial it down. And the the way that uh, you can make that easy is by understanding and really reframing your understanding of yourself that your ego is your enemy. Uh, It's not it's not your friend and it's not who you are. Your ego is probably keeping you from, let's say, you know, that that risk that would really help you out. It's it's keeping you from from um, taking the chance of failure if your ego is preventing you from any chance of failure, it's your enemy. If your ego is something that you've learned to dial up when it's helpful to have confidence and to dial down when it would just be a distraction or it would be bothersome to other people, then you've turned your enemy into your tool. So that's that's at least the, the way you should think of it. Because if you're saying, I, and I've seen people, I can't tell you how many times, I've seen people fail in business Because they were making ego-based decisions like, ah, I can't do that. I don't want to be associated with that, et cetera. Now, the best example is the one I gave earlier, which is when I created the Dilbert comic, it was a pure reflection of my ego. Because I was drawing comics that I, as a consumer, would want to read. And so that's that's as big an ego as you could have. But it wasn't until the audience said, oh, we don't like those generic ones we like when Dilbert's in the workplace that I said, okay, well, it's time to suck it up and give the audience what they say they want and put my ego on a shelf. Because my ego would have said, no, this is better. I know how to do this. I'm the artist. You're the customer. Just, just, Just read it the way it is. But instead, I did the, ob- the, uh, the opposite. I just dialed my ego out of the picture entirely and said, all right, tell me what you want. You know, you're the customer. You're paying me indirectly, so I'm going to give you what you want.
0: When, when you're thinking about just your own skill sets, how much self-belief do you have?
1: <laughs> Too much. Um, I don't know if you can learn this next part. Um, I don't remember any time in my life I didn't think that I would be wildly successful to the point of being both rich and famous. And there's no time that I thought that wouldn't happen. In fact, in my 20s, I woke up every day confused because it hadn't happened yet. And <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not even joking. I would wake up and I'd think, wait a minute, I work in a cubicle. This isn't what, how this is supposed to work out. I, I I'm I'm almost positive something better's ahead of me, and so you know with a little patience I got there, but so that's unnatural. I'm not even sure I would. Uh, I wouldn't even suggest that people even try to think that way. I, I think some people are just born with that point of view, and it just never goes away. So, so there's that. I, I think it's just natural.
0: I mean, your closely associated friends worked with a ton of successful people as well. How many of them fall into that category of that unwavering self-belief?
1: Um, I'll, I'll tell you there's a version of that that they all seem to have. And the version of it is that they see the world as something that they can control. In other words, they believe that they can change their own situation, and in so doing, it will change the world or at least enough of the world to make it conform to what they need You know, they don't have to change the entire world but just their, their corner of the world and the people who uh, tend to be unsuccessful believe that their fate is determined by events outside themselves it's like oh I was born poor what am I going to do you know, I was, I was born uh, not attractive what am I going to do I guess, I guess there's nothing I can do the world did not serve me up some good luck so that's the main thing. I, I'm not sure if you want to call that ego or is it more accurate perception that there's a whole lot you can do to change yourself, and in so doing, you almost guarantee that you change your at least your opportunity for luck.
0: Yeah, I like the verbiage there of accurate perception. We'll go with that. So when did when did you actually finally realize that you did make it? You were out of that cubicle. Would you have a defining moment?
1: <laughs> uh, I I joke about. <laughs> I joke about this because uh, I call it the lack of a champagne moment. So for my entire career, there have been all these mini moments where I, where I would almost say to myself, I've made it. Open the champagne. This is the thing. You know, nobody can take it away from me now. But it never quite worked that way. It was always just these little incremental things. Or, or For example, the day I got my contract to become a syndicated cartoonist, You'd say to yourself, well, that's the big break. That's the champagne moment. But then the, my editor explains, well, we're giving you a contract, but that doesn't mean we're going to put you in newspapers. We're going we're gonna to work with you to see if we can work together for six months, and then we'll make a separate decision about being in newspapers. So I thought, oh, okay, great. I'll hold off on the champagne <laughs> until, they decide, until they decide to sell me to newspapers. And then that day came. They said we're going to sell you to newspapers, and I'm like, ah, open the champagne, and they uh, and I'm like, well, how many newspapers do you think you can sell me into, and like, how much money am I going to make, and they told me, and I realized I could make a few thousand dollars total, <laughs> and, and I was like, well, that's not quite champagne, <laughs> you know? and then you know, every day a few newspapers would be added to the mix, but none of them were champagne moments. And then I, you know, I had a book that uh, was doing really well, but uh, it just took forever to become a number one bestseller. That was my book, uh, The Dilbert Principle, years ago. But when it came, uh, the closest I came was the the day that my book that had been number two on the New York Times bestseller list, and just sat there for weeks at number two, while Dennis Rodman's book, Bad As I (laughs) Want to (laughs) Be... <laughs> I I don't I don't know if Dennis Rodman even read the book. I'm sure he didn't I'm sure he didn't write it. But it bothered me no end. But I thought to myself, all right, why am I complaining? I'm number two in the whole New York Times list on the uh, nonfiction. That's pretty darn good. I mean, how you know, am I really complaining about being the second best author at the moment on, on this category? And I tried to talk myself into being okay with it. And then one day my editor called and said, guess what? You're the number one best-selling book in the world, Uh, at least on the nonfiction list, at least for those weeks. And that was my champagne moment. And I didn't realize even at the time how much it was. But let me tell you, the difference between being the number two best-selling author and being the number one best-selling author – I thought was going to be like a one percent difference. Turns out, it's closer to like a thousand percent difference. It, 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 suddenly, the entire the sky opened, and everybody in the world wanted to talk to me, hire me, give me money, pay me, have me speak. Uh, everything changed as soon as it hit number one, and it was almost overnight. So. So that was a good moment.
0: Yeah, I actually love a lot lot of different quotes you've written or said over the years. And I pulled one, and I think it's speaking specifically to this. And that quote is, apparently the thing inside me that makes me work so hard is the same thing that keeps me unsatisfied. And and you can just (laughs) see that, that the desire to, to constantly push. Was that the biggest career success you think you've experienced hitting number one?
1: Probably. It's the biggest one that had a discrete moment associated with it, you know, where you could get the phone call. It's like, yes, it's binary. I'm number one. Uh, The comic strip, as I said, was a whole bunch of small things that added up to a lot. So I I didn't have that moment there. Yeah, I I would say those, the number one book was my biggest career moment.
0: When you're assessing the career over the years, is there anything you just wish you spent a little bit more time on?
1: Huh. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that question. You know, do you know how rare it is to hear a question I've never heard before? (laughs) So so good job with that. Well, thank you. Uh, Let me see if I can answer it. Something I wish I'd spent more time on. Do you mean in terms of a skill or are you talking about work-life balance or just anything?
0: I feel like I've really gotten a lot over the years of you discussing certain skills and life skills you've spent time on. So yeah, I'd be really intrigued to hear that.
1: Well, I would say that the skill that is most um, obviously missing is, for me, is a second language. Uh, where I live, Spanish would be the obvious one. And probably a lot more experience traveling. Now, I was kind of busy, so I didn't have a lot of opportunities to travel. I worked seven days a week for most of my life. And, but I can tell that something's missing. Yeah, you know, when I when I interact with people who have more of a, a global experience, they're they're definitely different for it, and in a good way. They just have seen more things, you know, just a greater level of awareness in general. So I would say that would be a, a big blank spot in my my uh, talent stack.
0: <laughs> yes, talent stack. Something I've I've learned a great deal from. I really appreciate your work. It's it's one we've covered on the podcast before, so I know the listeners are are familiar with that. You were just talking about people who've traveled some of the skills they'll possess what do you think your superhuman skills are
1: oh well so here's one of those cases where I have to balance the ego thing <laughs> damn it be- because because it would be it would be real easy for d- me to give you an answer that sounded like just the ultimate douchebag answer but I'll, but, uh, uh, but I, I also have no shame that's one of my super I guess that's one of my my superpowers, as I've learned over time, had to deal with every kind of awkward, embarrassing, shaming situation and realize that they'd never kill me. I'll wake up the next day and it's like, huh, still alive. How about that? <laughs> a thousand times in a row, still alive. I don't know. I guess, I guess this embarrassing humiliation stuff doesn't hurt after all. Um, but to answer your question – Number one is my ability to withstand embarrassment, hugely, hugely valuable and useful, and is a learned skill. I didn't – this one, unlike my optimism, you know, I was born optimistic and thinking things would work out for me, but I definitely wasn't born uh, without a sense of shame. I mean, I had more than my share, and I had to learn through brute force and lots of practice how to just get over it. And I have. So there's that. Then the, the one thing that perhaps is a superpower that you can't learn. I think you can learn it somewhat, but maybe not to the level that some people are just born with it. And that's the skill towards simplification. And uh, if you look at those things which you have responded to in my writing – from From the systems versus goals, or the talent stacks, you'll notice that they have a common element, which I've taken something which is really a complicated environment, and I boiled it down to a simple rule or two. And that's what that's what activates it. So it's not it's not the idea that self that has the power, uh, it doesn't become activated until you can simplify it to the point where people can talk about it, hold it in their head, compare it to things. So I'm a world-class simplifier, and that you see that talent come through all of my uh, occupations.
0: Yeah, if, if you didn't bring that simplification up, I was going to inflate your ego there, because your work, there's no author, I don't think, where more times I just sit there and go, huh, why, why didn't I think of that? And it, it's just so <laughs> easy to implement these into your lives. So I really do appreciate that. And that's why I was having so much fun this weekend, uh, being able to read the new book, Loser Think. And and so someone who is unfamiliar with your work, they're going to pick up this book. What are you hoping they take away from it?
1: Well, I was trying to uh, give people some tools to escape their own little mental bubbles. So some people, for example, are are prisoners of the past. They're, they're worried too much about things that went before, and I teach them how to get out of that. Um, but there, there are a million little uh, traps. Do people know how to compare things? Uh, do people know the difference between coincidence and something meaningful? Now, your first impression might be, yeah, people know that stuff, but you're going to find a lot of surprises in the book, and probably a lot of people will be surprised that they thought they knew things, but uh, they're going to be surprised when they read the book. So it's how to get out of your own mental bubble, how to see the world more clearly and more productively, but also how to help people out of their bubbles. And I, I kind of took as my starting point all the dumbass things people say on social media because you can, you can find every form of unproductive thinking, and, and then that gave me fodder to write about and saying, don't don't do this and the the big uh, innovation in this book, the the simplification, if you will, that brings it all together, is the um, observation that people can avoid these various traps of loser think if they have exposure to different fields. So you don't have to be an economist to understand the law of you know supply and demand to know what a sunk cost is, to know the time value of money. They're pretty easy concepts to, to master as a general concept. But if you'd never been exposed to them, or, or if you'd never been exposed to any kind of process where uh, you, you learned how to compare things, let's say a scientist learns how to compare two experiments, experiments—you know, one's, a, one's the placebo or the control or whatever. But if you were, a, let's say, an English major, And somebody said to the English major, hey, how is the president doing? Doesn't matter which president. You know, don't have to make this about Trump. So how's the president doing? The English major would probably say great or poorly, depending on what side they were on. Whereas the economist or the scientist, if they're being unbiased, they might say, can't tell because there's nothing to compare it to. We don't have a president who is doing the same job at the same time. To compare to the one we have. So you don't know if the other one would have been better or worse. Can't tell. So that, that's just one example. But if you have not been exposed to at least the concepts in a variety of different fields from psychology to economics to history, etc., you'll you'll have blind spots that you don't know are blind spots. And so I reveal those blind spots in, in a very simple way.
0: Yeah, no, excellent point. The, the listeners know I'm a huge fan in, in reading Widely. And I love you break it down into different chapters, thinking like an artist, thinking like an engineer, thinking like a leader. The book is Loser Think. Scott, I have three quick hit questions for you before we let you go here. Are you ready for them? Ready. Who is one of the most impressive people you've been
1: around? Naval Ravikant. A uh, huge fan of Founder of, of Angelist. I sometimes refer to him jokingly but not really joking at all as the smartest person in the world. And he is the best example of a talent stack that you will ever see. He knows more about more things than just about anybody. And so when he, he gives you an opinion, you're feeling like all the context is there. It's sort of amazing. You talk to him for 10 minutes and you walk away thinking, I think I just got smarter. I think I'm smarter. So he's all right. What's your next question?
0: No, full. So someone other than Naval, uh who would be a great guest for this podcast?
1: Um, Mike Cernovich. Um, you would not know him unless you're uh, uh, you've seen his books, Gorilla Mindset, or you see him on Twitter. He has a huge Twitter following, and uh, he's also got a, a, an amazing talent stack. Now he's more provocative. So if he can't stand an opinion that doesn't agree with yours, uh, then he's not your guy. But if you want to be challenged and and have your brain shook around, he's your guy.
0: There's no point in living this life if that's not happening. So final one, when was the last time you were truly shocked by a performance you saw? A performance? What kind? This could be anything. This could be a, an unbelievable book you read. This could be a sporting event you've seen. This could be a theatrical performance.
1: Well, um, I was just reading a book, uh, American Nations, and I recommend it. Uh, it was recommended to me as sort of a, a mind-blowing piece. And I didn't think I was going to learn anything because it's sort of about the, you know, the early colonies and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, I went to school. I, I kind of know the basic deal. What, what kind of surprise am I going to get about the colonies? And sure enough. It's it's an amazing book. It's it's completely mind expanding. Uh, the basic gist of it is it talks about uh, how different each of the colonies were and the subgroups within them. And then you you come away with an entirely different understanding of the of, of the whole country because you understand its origin story in a way you'd never seen it before.
0: Well, I'll have to check that out. You mentioned having an entirely different understanding. Your new book, Loser Think, How Untrained Brains Are running, or Ruining Sorry, America. Uh, I, I've always been a bit, big fan of your work. I've been hoping to have you on for two and a half years. So Scott Adams, I really do appreciate you coming on and can't thank you enough.
1: Thank you so much for having me. You're actually great at this, by the way. I don't know if anybody tells you that, but it's, it's hard to have these. You know, I'm, I'm going to do about a million interviews because of the book. And they're not all going to go this well. So good job.
0: Thank you. It means a lot.
1: You guys made
0: it to the end of another episode of What Got You There? I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.